Welcome back, everybody. This is the Willow Center podcast, and it is the month of May, which is Mental Health Month in the United States. So we're so excited to focus this month's topic around mental health. I am your host, Chase, along with Mason. And we are excited to introduce you to our guest, our clinical director here at the Willow Center, Angel. Angel, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? All right. So my name is Angel Brooks. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I have been working in the field now um, with my master's degree officially for, I think, um, eight years, 10 years. The pandemic year is like three or four. Eight (laughs) years. Eight years. But I started working um, a little bit before that with my internship. So it's been going on close to probably 12 years now that I've been um, working in the field. Um, I've worked in a different variety of um, places with variety of populations, but I've always come back to working with individuals with substance use disorders. Awesome. That's great. Well, we're, we're grateful for your experience and we're so stoked to have you as our boss. So, uh, as you know, dear listener, the sort of theme of this season of season three has been busting myths and, and, uh, in particular busting myths as they relate to mental health and addiction. And so for this month, for mental health awareness month, we wanted to bust the myth that addiction is just an external problem. And so we invited Angel to come and share, uh, based on the experience that she has in the field, uh, working with clients who um, uh, have experience uh, both living with addiction as well as living with mental illness, uh, to talk about um, just how this myth manifests itself in culture and the harm it can do to people who need help. Uh, So we're just going to kind of dive in. Y'all ready? Yep. All right, let's do it. So to start out with, um, plain and simple, if you had to just answer yes or no and then give us an explanation, is addiction a mental health problem? Yes. Okay, why? Why do you say that? Um, well, I mean, it's, it is always, in my experience, it's almost always been combined with individuals who have struggled with substance use you know they are typically using substances to cope with anxiety depression trauma and so oftentimes it's their way of coping and um therefore it is a mental health issue i appreciate that i think that you know that falls right in line with some of the other myths we've already busted this season and the fact that there is some sort of connection, especially when it comes to experiences like depression or trauma or anxiety or what have you, uh, and, and, you know, developing negative coping skills. So let's, let's dive into this myth a little bit further. So from a prevalence standpoint, how many cases of addiction slash substance use disorder include mental health components? that either predate the substance use or happen like comorbidly or have a comorbidity? So in my experience, this is really a struggle because it's really did the chicken or the egg come first. It's hard to know if somebody is using to cope with mental health issues or if mental health issues were created because of their substance use. 
However, in my personal experience from working in the field as long as I have, I would say 90% of individuals that I have worked with struggle with some type of mental health issue, and many of them were using substances to cope with the mental health and or have experienced trauma, which that's where the mental health issue likely came from. And so the substance use is a um, coping mechanism to dealing with the mental health issue that likely comes from some sort of traumatic event in um, childhood or early adult life. I mean, 90% is a lot. I mean, we're not talking about just a simple, small majority, like just over 50%. We're talking about the vast majority of cases of addiction, at least in central Indiana, where we've all served, includes some sort of interior mental health component. Yeah, I mean, I know it seems like it's a lot, but that's how connected they are. Even individuals who will come and say, like, no, I had a amazing childhood. My parents were extremely supportive or, um, you know, I had everything I ever wanted. Through therapy, they're able to realize that they likely um, were missing out on something. Maybe they felt like they were, uh, maybe they were the middle child and they um, were the black sheep or they had some need that wasn't being met. Maybe their family member had mental health issues or substance use issues and um, they learned to cope with um, peer pressure or um, social influences that way. I hear many times from people in you know, recovery circles, I had a normal childhood. Like I had nothing that went wrong. And so I don't really know how I ended up here. Can you maybe speak a little bit to how normal, I mean, that it doesn't really exist. A lot of what a lot of people think is normal it's really, it's really not. Well, this is all generational. So it's normal based off of what we know, what the people before us in our family know. And so, you know, we get our coping skills, our self-worth, our perceptions, our beliefs from um, our parents, our parents get it from their parents. And um, it's all just kind of passed down and until somebody kind of steps in the way and says, I'm not going to do it this way, does it continue? And even then somebody can um, easily stop all the negative behaviors. And from personal experience, to be completely honest, that's part of what my story is, is that like, it was all generational in my family and I stopped all of those negative behaviors. And until I had children myself, did I realize that there was still a lot of emotional work that needed to happen. And I know that my children will now have a better life than I have, but I can't say that they won't have to do some work to make sure that their kids have an even better life than they had because I'm not my perfect self. Um, I because of that so much, like, I feel like, you know, with my little girl, I, I frequently have a hard time falling asleep thinking about what, what is she going to be in therapy for <laughs> because of the way I parented her, despite, you know, all the gentle parenting techniques and all of, you know, the new generational, you know, information that we had that our parents didn't have. Like, how do you, how do you even deal with that fear as a parent? If you could speak to that a little bit. Well, it's 
knowing that I'm just doing something different. I use a lot of positive self-talk, a lot of um, support, looking to um, the attachment styles of like my husband's family. He had a positive attachment style and how they interact, even then not perfect. And there are some things from those family members that my kids will have to deal with as well. But You know, for example, my family is not extremely, my family is not connected to my children's lives. And so that is something that my children are going to ask me one day is like, where is your family, mom? And I'm going to have to explain that to them and where that came from. And um, they're going to have to decipher whether or not that has anything to do with them. And if that explains my parenting in any way. And then also just like going to therapy myself and um, reassuring myself and having compassion for myself. That's so important. I I feel like that self-compassion component is one of the hardest pieces to understand, both when you're living in addiction or mental health uh, struggles or when you're living tertiary to it with someone else. It's like there is a component of self-loathing that is so insidious and sometimes difficult to recognize until you're trained like you two are, you know, and I'll benefit from that training. I've only, I've only, you know, seen it or experienced it tertiarily. So it's like that, that self-loathing I, I feel like has, um, uh, it, it has some sort of component that is not only generational, but also like biochemical to it. And I'm really curious how it, how it ties into like what's happening inside your skull you know what's happening like in your brain when you are in active addiction Uh, whether or not it's comorbid with with depression or anxiety or some other mental health struggles but you know like we already established it likely is like what's happening in the brain yeah so i actually talked about this with a client um earlier this week and the fact of like Every individual that I've ever met that's had a substance use disorder and engaged in the cycle of insanity when it comes to using a substance has engaged in self-pity to an extreme at some point. I think that there is a fine line between what is okay and what is not. Are there days that I self-loathe and self-pity and um, yet I don't engage in um, excessive substance use? Yeah, there are. And that's easy. But it's how long do we stay there that really matters? You know, so many people in active addiction and um, with a substance use diagnosis, they um, will use something negative that happened to them in their life as a reason to use a substance Um likely negative um, impacts or trauma that's created some depression in the in the brain when you're experiencing depression you you know you have a decrease of uh, serotonin and dopamine and so if you use a substance we'll say alcohol for instance it floods the brain with dopamine and serotonin and you experience a temporary relief and pleasure it helps you to relax and you Oftentimes, some people will drink to the point that they forget the problem that it was that they were drinking about, but that creates more problems. Many people will wake up in jail because they've received a DUI and then or they end up with divorced because they've done something um, to an extreme with their partner 
and then they will drink because they're divorced and they're lonely mm-hmm. and they stay there and then they have another negative impact and their relationship with their children suffers and then now oh well I don't have a relationship with my children so now I'm going to drink because my children don't love me and I'm single and now it struggles with my job and so it just keeps struggling versus saying to yourself you know well yeah I got a divorce but this is an opportunity for me to learn more about myself and figure out what I can do in my next marriage or in my next relationship to be a different person to something different to bring to the table and so it's definitely a cycle of insanity but often a lot of it is pleasure seeking and the relief that the substance gives us from the spike of serotonin and dopamine in the brain that we are missing either chemically from genetics and, or that maybe we've turned off due to trauma. I just, I want to make sure that I have this right. It it feels like you broke that up into two pieces. There is this, you know, thought disease, if you will, of this thinking of self-pity and just ruminating on all of the genuinely bad things that happen. But when something bad happens, you don't have to let it take over your mind all day, every day, right? You can, and then, so there's this self-growth component and a component of dopamine and like that feel-good chemical. And some people don't have, like have, you know, genuine issues that need medication for it, or, you know, they need to find healthy ways to find dopamine and serotonin, maybe through exercise or journaling or whatever that happens to be. Is that the breakdown you were trying to give? Right. Yeah. And so, right. Like the ruminating can be either over past experiences, which I like to describe as what leads to depression. When we ruminate over past life experiences, that's often depression. Whereas if we're ruminating over possible situations in the future is anxiety. And to calm that down, people for either one of those people will use a substance. People that have a lot of anxiety often will try to use some type of depressant like alcohol or cannabis whereas people who maybe want to feel better and or more upbeat might use a stimulant such as cocaine um so it's very different in what it is that they're they're seeking but really it's this this numbness the the sense of pleasure that's instant that they feel when they use a substance versus trying to problem solve and work through all of the mess that life brings everybody every single day. And so ultimately that substance use leads to both exterior problems in exacerbated ways, as well as interior, like increased interior problems by setting up that tolerance and then eventually chemical dependence. Like it, it is both. It's not just outside. It's not just like bad behavior. Like sometimes addiction is portrayed. Like there's legitimate both biological and thought-based like things, like pathways being set up and, and supported here by, the, by substance use. Yeah, absolutely. The brain starts to crave the substance over a certain period of time, which is the piece that's uncontrollable where the disease aspect starts to come in. Um, the cravings are created by obsessive thoughts, right? But it a lot of it starts by the seeking of relief for many people. Right. But 
due to mental health issues, the thing is, is that using that substance oftentimes, not oftentimes, almost always creates and or exacerbates the mental health issue. You know, somebody starts out with depression and anxiety and they do years of meth, they often will become psychotic at that point, hallucinating and having, um, psychotic thoughts and or seeing things or hearing things that aren't there yeah it's essentially just turning the dial up on the underlying issue that was there before that they were trying to escape correct yes which is a bummer i mean like it's a bummer when you think about it even just interpersonally and socially uh, i mean especially for our listeners who maybe you don't have a personal connection to the recovery community in any way maybe it's even you find yourself having a hard time empathizing with the issue like I want you to make sure you hear Angel's words just then. It, it, it is not just necessarily seeking, uh, you know, the pleasure. Like, it is a seeking of relief. And I feel like that's a really human element that all of us can relate to because we all have certain types of struggles in our life and griefs and losses and traumas that we are seeking relief from. It's a matter of are we equipped to deal with them in healthy ways. And it almost sounds like, or, or from what I what I have heard from people in the recovery community, it starts off, you know, using what people coin as a lighter substance and like alcohol or cannabis, which can still have devastating effects. But it starts off with that seeking a mental relief, maybe on the weekends, and then through years and years of reinforcing it, then you get into withdrawal, and so then you're like you are seeking physical relief at some point, as right. well as mental relief. All, you know, from a substance that is just—it's given you false promises the whole way. Yeah, absolutely. And I've never met somebody who's woke up and said like I intended to be addicted to alcohol today. Almost everybody will tell you that it started out as a temporary relief, a long day or hard day from work a um, fight with a partner or, you know, financial stress and that this just helped them to unwind. It helped them to go to sleep. It helps their mind to stop racing and they realize that it works. But the fact that it starts to build tolerance and you need more and more of the substance to be able to experience the same effect, the body starts to depend on it for the dopamine and serotonin and if you don't give the body that then it will experience physical withdrawals and some substances you the withdrawals can be fatal yeah it's important to realize good points both of you thanks for bringing that up so when it comes to like in particular some of the stigmas surrounding this particular myth that you know addiction is just an external problem it's just a thing that causes a bunch of trouble for everybody else in this person's life like what are what are some common misnomers or phrases or labels or thoughts that you've heard expressed that are stigmatizing towards our loved ones that are experiencing this kind of addiction you know they'll say addiction is a choice i'll say that's the the biggest one i hear and i I heard it in a recovery circle just yesterday and so and it and uh one of these one of my individuals said you know, I, I, it took like going through most of recovery for me to realize like getting into a program, get learning through therapy. And after all that and working all the steps in AA, I finally realized that it's not a choice. Could you, could you speak 
to maybe more to that stigmatizing thought what what makes people think addiction is a choice and not a disease because people see they don't understand how somebody can experience such negative consequences that maybe would be their reason for stopping maybe getting one dui um, would be enough for them to never drink again. But for you, it takes five DUIs and they don't understand how you need more and you can't stop. They see the negative impact that it's having on the community, the people that are being incarcerated for it. And that all they see is the behavioral issues that substance use causes the things that people will do to engage in substance use the lying the cheating the stealing the manipulating those things are hurtful to our loved ones to the community and that's what we focus on and so many people think that that's intentional but in reality they they can't they're just doing what they can to make themselves feel better so what you're kind of getting at is the idea of symptomatic behaviors Absolutely. Yeah. All of these behaviors are symptoms. And so, you know, it's maybe been um, 150 years or so now, but addiction actually fits the disease model for um, medical diagnosis um, and is not, which is why we can say it is a disease. You know, we have an organ that is impacted, which is the midbrain. We have a defect which is that the brain experiences um, likely too little pleasure. And then we have symptoms of the substance use, which is the behaviors that the community sees from the individual engaging in the excess amount of substance use and or the addiction piece itself, you know, the just the impact that it has on us. So those are all symptoms of the disease. It's no different than diabetes. Diabetes, the organ is the pancreas. The defect is that it creates too much or too little sugar. And while symptoms are that you are always thirsty, you urinate a lot, you have trouble sleeping, you, uh, you know, can't feel your feet, neuropathy, like those are the symptoms of the disease of diabetes. And there is research now to show that addiction actually fits the disease model for medical diagnosis yeah i think if i think if if folks in our culture would be more accepting of that idea then maybe there'd be a little a little less stigma or, or a, a few less barriers to people getting the help they need when they need it like another stigma that i've heard um and i think this applies both to addiction and to mental health like anxiety or depression is, is sort of like 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 the quick fix type ideas um the magic bullet solution type stigmas where it's like, uh, you know, I think in particular it happens in, in communities of faith when it comes to mental health where it's like, you can just, just pray it away. Right. Like that's kind of a stigmatizing idea when no, it's probably going to take many weeks of difficult internal work with a, with a trained therapist or, um, you know, I've, I've heard it like, Oh, you just, you just, just go to rehab for a few weeks and you'll be fine. You'll be cured. Right. And it's like, that's, that's a stigmatizing idea in its own right. Even if it's well-intentioned, I feel like it, in effect, sets people up with false hope. Absolutely. Research actually shows that the individuals that are most successful with long-term recovery actually receive about one year's worth of treatment. Um, and it decreases oftentimes 
um, from extreme intensive treatment, such as inpatient or residential to outpatient to individual and then community support meetings. But it is an everyday battle. And um, I went to a conference recently and he said, you know, that incarceration protected him from himself, but treatment helped him find himself. And so really like that's what it is, is that like we are trying to help individuals find out who they are and create healthier ways of coping when life happens. So then what, what are some really practical ways that we can help listeners cope? Right. Cause if it's true, if the true, if it's true that there is an interior link to addiction, it's not just a behavioral external problem. Like what self care or self regulation recommendations would you give to a listener just to try and help reduce some of those negative feelings when it comes to mental health? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things, but the biggest thing is ask for help. You know, you guys will hear everywhere that the opposite of addiction is connection. And there is somebody somewhere struggling with a very similar situation that you are, that if you just knew that somebody else was struggling, that you would feel better. They may not be able to take the symptoms away, but the fact that you can get it out there and you don't feel like you are all alone makes a huge difference. So trying to connect with others, asking for help, getting the support that's needed. And, you know, oftentimes, too, is like doing the opposite of the urge. I think um, if you have the urge to lay in bed and to just hide and be a turtle in its shell with the curtains pulled and that's fine. Do that for a day. But the next day, you know, force yourself to get up and set a timer, say 10 minutes and go out and sit on the porch in the sunshine. And there's a very high chance that after that 10 minutes is over, you're not going to want to get back in the bed, you're going to be able to find the motivation, the strength to get up and to accomplish a task that day. And once you accomplish one task, then you likely are going to be able to say, Oh, well, then that felt really good. I can accomplish another task. The hardest part is admitting it and getting yourself the help. Um, I think about when I go to the gym. The hardest part is going to and getting to the gym. But once I actually get to the gym, I am able to get on the elliptical and I tell myself, right, like 10 minutes, I'm going to do 10 minutes on the elliptical. Well, I do eight minutes and I'm like, Oh, I got this. I can do 15. Yeah. And then I do 12 minutes and I'm like, I got this. I can do 20. Next thing I know, I've done 30 minutes on the elliptical and I feel amazing after I've left. And so setting small goals and objectives, asking for help, doing the opposite of the urge. And I mean, we don't, we're all in this together, mental health, substance use, whatever the struggle is like we all are, um, have something that we need support with. I completely agree. Setting small goals is so huge and, and it helps us, it helps to remind ourselves of what's important because so many times, especially when we're the, in the throes of depression or anxiety, you know, it's midnight and our mind won't stop racing or it's the morning and we just can't get out of bed. We play into it with rumination we continue to focus on how horrible we feel or what's going to happen in the future and so having small goals and, and learning to trust ourselves a little bit trusting that okay i can get out of bed and trusting i can reach out for help and finding 
those people and those activities that help us feel good, whether that's working out, texting a friend, or, you know, prayer or meditation, you know, there, and, and I think that's maybe, maybe the hardest place is just starting and finding those activities for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. And it is right. Just coming up with something because the easier thing to do is just reach for what's worked. Right. And that's using the substance. But there are some other things that you can do to manage anxiety and depression, mental health issues to get the dopamine and serotonin rolling. Exercise is the number one coping skill um, for uh, releasing serotonin and dopamine. It uh, activates the exact same part of the brain and it's a natural release. Uh, It's hard, but it's also more than good for our mental health that's good for our physical health as well in so many different ways eating dark chocolate talking to a friend getting out in the sunshine um there is you know maybe playing with a dog or a pet or a baby watching comedy and or doing like some type of laughing exercise, making a to-do list and actually checking off some of the things on there gives us a serotonin and dopamine spike, healthy sexual activity. There are many things that we can do to give us spikes of dopamine and serotonin that don't have to be substance use and or substances. And as, as a coach here at the Willow Center, I, I do want to plug all of our therapists and just what we offer here because w- what I tell to my clients at the end of almost every session is we're probably not going to, you know, have a major breakthrough every session and that's okay. But what we are going to do is we can remind you of the things that are important to you and help you do what you already know you need to do. Whether that is taking a walk, eating some dark chocolate, or reaching out to your family members. And that is, they're, they're, they're the small things, but set, setting those habits up will continue to help you grow and grow into the person you want to become, which I think is a beautiful thing. Well, thank you so much, Angel, for giving us your time and sharing your wisdom and experience with us. This has been a delight. We appreciate you. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm um, so glad that I could um, share this experience that I have. Cool. Uh, if you're listening right now and you're feeling depressed, you're feeling anxious, you, you have thoughts of, of hurting yourself, or um, maybe you're on the verge of another binge or, or using a substance, uh, please reach out. Please listen to these words again over and over if you need to. There's no shame in getting help. So please call the Willow Center. Our number is 317-852-3690. This has been episode four of season three of the Willow Center podcast. I've been your host, Chase and and Mason. And we look forward to you joining us next month. And next month, we'll be diving into the myth of cannabis use being not addictive or not as bad or not that big of a deal in general. So we'll be talking all about cannabis, marijuana, and the things you might hear about it. Join us next month.